into our new series. Um, it's back to school time. People are getting back into planning lessons. Uh, Julie's been working on elements, and I've been working on that. Some of you are getting ready for your life groups to kick off even today. And uh, we're in this re-energized mode of finding truth and knowledge. And in the midst of that, we know there are times when we are deceived. We believe things that aren't true. And sometimes, maybe even at the worst of times, we're the ones that conjure up or conceive the untruth. And we say things to God that aren't really true because we're trying to avoid some of the discomfort of being close to God. And so we're talking about uh, lies we tell God and, and just being honest with ourselves, being fully you, that there are sometimes there are things that we just say and we do because we're intimidated by walking that close to God. And, and so we're going through this series. And so last week we, uh, we talked a little bit um, about this and how lies show up. And let me just remind you that when we're telling lies to God, really what we're doing is we're trying to convince ourselves. We cannot convince God of something that's untrue. It's not going to work. It doesn't happen. We still try, but it just isn't going to work. What we are really aiming at is trying to convince ourselves that we can create some kind of an alternative reality, that we can create some kind of a fantasy that's a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more to our advantage. So last week we looked at the life of Samson and how God called him from before the time he was born, gifted him, blessed him with incredible physical strength, and asked really one thing, one crazy thing of him, one thing that seems like it has nothing to do with life or physicality, just, you know, don't let your hair get cut thing. And even with that, Samson couldn't keep himself from wandering and dabbling in other lies and believing other things, and that cost him dearly. And at the end of his life, he prayed once more. And we find that even in the midst of a lived-out lie, God is present and faithful and hears us and gave Samson one more chance to have victory over the Philistines. That was the story last week. So we're going to go on from there. And so today I want you to think about this. This is going to be a bit of the focus for us today. God asks for our availability... And we try to deceive him when we make ourselves unavailable. When we tell God, you know, I don't have time, I don't have the talent, you got the wrong person, it's really an act of deception. And bear with me, and I'll pull this apart for you a little bit. So what we're going to be talking today about is how our availability to God can, or being unavailable to God, can form a lie in our lives. I want to look at uh, a passage of scripture for this, and this is in Exodus chapter 4. Let me set up the story. Many of you know the story of Moses. If, you have, if you're a fan of Charlton Heston, you know the story of Moses. I have a friend that takes huge issue with Charlton Heston and, and the whole thing of the, the movie. Um, he doesn't think it's very biblical, and it's, it's not, but it's great theater, and it's a great movie. But here's Moses who uh, was like Samson, was called as a child 
to be the one who was going to save the people of Israel and, and then came under threat because of that. And so his family, in, in, in a crazy, ludicrous moment, thought the way to save our child's life is to put him in some reeds and launch him into the crocodile-infested Nile River. I mean, moms, if your husband came home and said, you know, our child could lose their life, let's go make a raft and push him out with the crocodiles. Would you go, wow, that, that'll work? No, I mean, that's, it's ludicrous, but that's, you know, that's what they did. And then, of course, we know the story is Pharaoh's, one of Pharaoh's daughters found him, raised him in the courts of the Pharaoh. And so he was this Hebrew who was raised as royalty, who then, again, ludicrous, preposterous to me, commits murder. He kills a man who is abusing the Israelites, the, the Hebrews, and instead of facing the music, so to speak, he runs out into the desert and he goes to what scripture tells us is the far side of the desert. He finds a wife there. I think that's crazy too. Who goes and finds a wife in the desert? But he does. And uh, he watches sheep. So this guy who's been the child that was called by God, who was saved by Pharaoh and raised as a royal becomes a sheep herder on the far side of the desert. And of course, God appears to him in the form of this bush that seems to be burning. And God says, Moses, I got something for you to do. I have an idea. I've heard, I like this, Exodus, literally it says, I have heard the cries of my people. Go back. And this is the conversation that Moses has with God there before the burning bush. But Moses protested again, what if they don't believe me, won't believe me, or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob really has appeared to you. But then the Lord said to Moses, now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out again, his hand was white as snow with a severe skin disease. Now put your hand back in your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back in. And when he took it out again, it was healthy as the rest of his body. The Lord said to Moses, if they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second sign. And if they don't believe you or listen to you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile River and pour it on the dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will be turned to blood on the ground. But Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. 
Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. And just notice the exclamation mark. Now go. I will be with you as you speak and I will instruct you in what to say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he is on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with both of you as you speak. And I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece. And you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. And take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs I've shown you. Now I got to tell you that as I read this, I have to say, you know, Moses, come on. You're in front of this burning bush and it doesn't burn up. And you know this is incredible. And this is a holy moment. And Moses, you're hearing from God audibly, directly. Come on, Moses. But we humans have this tendency to doubt that God would invest himself in us or that God would choose us as the conduit through which to do his will. And so when that appears to us, when that becomes clear that God wants to use us somehow to do something, we have this tendency to go, oh, wait a minute, there must be some mistake here. You must have gotten this wrong because if a person had got this right, it wouldn't be me doing this. And the reason we do that is because of what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about what is possible through our own ability. So you notice that Moses is saying, I I can't talk, I kind of get my words mixed up, and I can't, you know, the people don't respect me. I'm, I'm really surprised that Moses wasn't humble enough and bold enough at the same time to say, but you know, Lord, I'm a murderer. (laughs) They know that I killed a guy back there. He doesn't bring that up. He just says, my abilities, this body, this talent that you've given me is insufficient. And so I think when we put ourselves in that moment where, you know, God is trying to do something and he lays it on our heart and the Holy Spirit is moving us to do something, we go, wait a minute, there's some mistake. Somebody else should be doing this. I think there's probably one of three things happening. Instead of believing in the power of God that he has promised to us, we're probably believing that we're destined, one, that we're destined for failure. I, I would do this, God, but this is your work, and this is really important work. Moses could have said, you know, this is the children of Israel. This is the most important thing to you, Lord. And if I mess it up and it fails, your will falls apart because of me. For a lot of us, the sense of failure will keep us paralyzed, especially when we think, you know, I might try this, and this is kingdom stuff, and if it gets messed up, it's on me. And someday I will stand before God on the day of judgment. He'll go, you didn't prepare for that Sunday school lesson. I'm not letting you in. You didn't talk to that neighbor who was hurting. 
You didn't give the pastor 10 bucks when Lakota was standing up here. <laughs> I had to get that one in. We have a tendency to doubt that God would use us because we think our frailty will lead to failure. We'll talk about that in more in just a moment. We also have a tendency to think, if I actually do this, if I do what God is leading me to do, God will actually get the credit and I will be destined for obscurity. They'll go, God did great things and nobody's going to notice what I did and the sacrifices I made. So God, I'm not going to do it because you're going to get the glory. I don't really deserve it, but I would like some glory, so I'm going to do my own thing instead of doing your thing. We'll talk about that a bit more. Finally, the third one, I think on this, the reasons we say you've made some mistake is because, God, if I actually do what you want me to do, we're destined for some kind of sacrifice. This one is actually carries quite a bit of validity. If I actually do what you want, it's going to cost me, and I'm not sure I want to pay the price. So let's look at these a little bit closer. When we say, Lord, I don't want to do this because I think it's going to fail, what we're really saying is, Lord, I don't really believe in your power. I believe that whether it succeeds or fails is based on my ability. That's what Moses said. My words, my words are going to screw it up, Lord. And whether or not the people get out of slavery and bondage is going to hinge on my words. Who in their right mind would want their freedom to be fixed on whether or not I can speak effectively. And so Moses is discounting the fact that God says, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this about. No, it's up to me, God. And God's saying, no, it's not. So I just want to remind you that when we say, I'm not going to do this because I think it's going to fail, what we're really saying is, I don't think God is going to do it. It's all on us. The next one, the destined for obscurity thing is, you know, God, if you do this and it, it doesn't fail and you get all the glory, I'm, I'm going to be forgotten and people are going to go on by. And, and I'll tell you what, this is, this is not an uncommon thing to think. Especially, uh, I would just share for some pastors, some of, some of us pastors that we think, you know, if I really do this and God blesses it and, you know, the kingdom grows through what I do, People are going to know I can't do this and God's going to get the glory and they're going to go on and they're going to miss the pieces that I really worked hard on. And we have a tendency in this to, to not believe that God's promises to care for us are real. You know, God said, um, if you come and follow me, I will lift you up. And sometimes I'm not sure what that means because I don't think it's the same being lifted up in the eyes of the world. But we think, I'm just going to get lost in the dust after this takes off and, and nobody will know I'm there. And you'll forget me, God. And you'll go on with bigger and greater things without me. The third one, when we think, okay, well, if I do this for the Lord, it's going to cost me. It's going to be a sacrifice. In that, what we're really saying is, I don't believe that God will provide. I don't really believe that God's provision will take care of whatever sacrifices I need to make. And so if God's calling me to do this, I'd rather rely on my own resources and hoard my own resources than to say, God, if you call me to do this, and somehow you're going to plug in the resources that are needed. And if I let go of dear and costly things, what you're going to replace them with are going to be far more valuable. Maybe not in the world's eyes, 
but in kingdom terms, far more valuable. So those are some of the responses we have when we say, you've made some mistake, Lord. Don't ask me. I'm unavailable. And so here's Moses going, you know, I don't feel well. I'm not good at talking. God, get somebody else to do it. And we have all kinds of reasons. I think these three, though, cut really deep. So let's talk just for a moment about availability and ability. Because that's what Moses really cuts to. I can't do this. Mark Batterson in the book, um, what is it, Circle Maker? Circles, Circle Maker. He says this, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. So for those of you who have been sitting back, like me at times ago, there's somebody else that's a lot more talented out there that can do this. They probably weren't more talented and didn't have a whole lot more ability when God laid it on their heart. Because God does this thing where he adds value. He adds ability. He adds giftedness to our lives. And he then qualifies us to do what he calls us to. And sometimes this looks very strange. It looks very strange. So sometimes the most obvious people that you would go, you know, they should be the one doing that. So, you know, if I were to come to you and go, you know, the next time we do a class for elements and we're teaching on theology, I'd like you to teach one night, you would probably go, you should be asking Julie. This is Julie's deal. This is where her gifts are. She's great at this. And uh, God might be saying, you know what? I'm just calling you. You may not be ready, but would you be willing? Would you look it over? Would you think about it? Because I might enable you and call you to do something you didn't know you could do. That's the first quote. This other one I really like. Uh, Neil Maxwell says, God does not begin by asking us about our ability, but only about our availability. And if we then prove our dependability, he will increase our capability. Isn't that cool? He doesn't ask us about what we're able to do. He doesn't ask us about our talents. And Oh, by the way, what have you learned to do that I could use? He doesn't ask about that. He just says, are you mine? Are you mine? And then... When we show up again and again and say, I'm yours, Lord, I'm right here, I'm yours, Lord, right here, he develops our capabilities. And that's a supernatural thing. I think it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I think sometimes it's hard for us to explain, and some of us who've experienced it are humbled by it because we recognize that this isn't me at work here. This is something that God is doing. So as we talk about this, let me just show you some patterns of how God invites people to be part of what he's doing. So there's the pattern of the fishermen. I mean, these guys that, that grew up up there, way up in that north country of Galilee. And I like to explain it this way. In terms of culture in Palestine at the time of Christ, the, the really educated, wealthy people were living in Jerusalem. I mean, that was the city. I mean, that was like New York City for them. And if you made a lot of money... And if you were educated, that's where you wanted to be. That was the center of everything. And instead, Jesus, not only is he from Nazareth, but he spends his childhood there. So 
he's from way up north. You have to go up the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and around Capernaum. And that's where these guys are coming from. And in their context, that distance from Jerusalem down south here to Capernaum and Nazareth up here is like saying, these are the elite. These are the smart and wealthy people. Those guys up there are a bunch of hillbillies, a bunch of rednecks. They're fishermen. I mean, how much skill does it take to get in a boat and pull fish out of the water and sell them? You know, they're, they're, not, they're not studying scrolls. They're not involved in the law. These are blue-collar guys. And the pattern of him calling these fishermen, and not only does he start by calling the fishermen, but he surrounds himself with this intimate three, Peter, James, and John, that are with him most of the time. And they're all fishermen. Now, there's some others he throws in there. I mean, he throws in a tax collector. Yeah! And then he throws in a zealot. Oh, my word. I mean, he's a political radical. He's probably going to kill somebody. But he starts with these fishermen, these simple guys that are just callous of their hands, sweat of their brow kind of guys. And he says, come on. And then we see that these three, Peter, James, and John, become pivotal. They become so important. And Peter is the one who will preach that sermon on Pentecost. Perhaps the most important sermon preached by a human being ever. And John... The revelator is the one who sees this incredible vision and writes it down for the churches about what the Lord wants to reveal to them. And I wonder if late in their life somebody saw them and said, man, these are, these are the apostles. And somebody goes, yeah, well, I knew John when he was pulling nets out of the water. Yeah, but he sure didn't stay there. So there's this pattern of of fishermen, and then you see that he also has these patterns of, of inviting people and seeking out people who are oddly strategic. I mean, strangely strategic. And I look at the Apostle Paul this way, because the Apostle Paul just kind of blows me away. He was a lawyer, and he was a Pharisee, and he had Roman citizenship. I mean, this guy had all the credentials. He had it all. He was positioned. This guy was on a fast track to the Sanhedrin. He was going to be a ruler of the religious people of Israel. And that was going to give him a lot of power. And you go, good call. That's who God needs. Except he's killing God's people. He's the guy who's going around, busting down doors, hauling them out, throwing them in to jail. And so, you know, there's, there's this perplexing, strange thing that, that happens when God comes and encounters Paul on that road to Damascus. And Paul goes, oh my word, I've, I've just spoken to the Lord and he's blinded. And then he goes, I want you to go to Ananias on the street that's straight in Damascus. And here's Ananias, a believer, who knows that his life is under threat, who knows he may end up in some Jewish prison, and who knocks at the door but a blind apostle Paul. (laughs) Oh, this is weird. You see, God calls people and invites people, seeks out people who are strangely, strategically placed 
And most of those people don't realize it. They have made themselves so unavailable like Paul, they are antagonistic toward God. But God will use that, and he will turn it 180 degrees. Finally, on this point of availability and ability, I, I, I'm, I can't go by without talking about this. God also looks for people who are uncomfortably countercultural. And this is hard for us. When we encounter people, we go, they just are not like, they're strange, and they're just not like us. And it just seems weird when we're around them, and they do things that make me uncomfortable because I don't understand it. And why can't they just do it our way? Because they're countercultural. And in this, I've got to point out these women. Mary Magdala, Priscilla, Phoebe, Junia, we could go on and on. But in the culture of the time, the culture of the time was not welcoming of women who were given a loud voice, who were given a place of leadership. And yet God said, would you do this? And they emerge and the early church embraces them. And the rest of the world goes, you guys are crazy. You're letting the women run these things at times. You know, if you, if you ever study missions and how the gospel has spread around the globe, about the second paragraph in, you're going to run into women. I mean, you just can't get very far into it. You might get past William Carey, and then you're going to start running into people like Amy Carmichael. And if you don't know who those people are, you should. They're incredible. But you know, God uses countercultural people that just kind of upset and turn things upside down that can come in because they already make people uncomfortable by their very presence. Hearing an uncomfortable word is sort of expected. Isn't that weird? Years ago, I sat at one of our general conferences. We do this four times a year. We, we gather people from across the United States and a few people come from overseas and join us. And, and we have this huge conference and it's always interesting and sometimes it's a lot of fun and they brought this guy from latin america and and i i can't remember his name for the life of me but they they invited him to come and preach and so he was going to preach in spanish and this guy was a true latino i mean he came and he was true to latino culture so he got up there and he started preaching and this guy talked fast and he talked loud, and he moved around. I mean, he was from one side of the platform to the other side of the platform, and he was yelling, and he was preaching in Spanish, and we're just going, wow! I mean, this guy is just pinning our ears back, and I'm sure that there were a lot of people there that were thought, thank goodness it's in Spanish because if it's in English, I'm sure I couldn't handle this. Except they asked Bishop Roller to interpret for him. And Bishop Roller is probably the most gifted interpreter I've ever watched because Bishop Roller mimicked every single gesture, every vocal inflection. When his voice went up, Bishop Roller's voice went up. When he used his hand this way, Bishop Roller used his hand this way. And it was just like he had a shadow back and forth. And I thought to myself, man, David Roller's going to fall down and pass out because they're just going back and forth across that. And you know what he preached on? He preached to us on how the Free Methodist Church in America needs to wake up and come alive. You talk about uncomfortable. 
But it was most appropriate because here was a guy from a, from a different culture coming in from the outside who was having somebody interpret it from another language. And you know what? That was the most powerful moment that I can remember from that general conference. So just be patient when somebody comes in and you just go, man, they do, do not fit in. They don't know how we do things here at Northwest. They don't know how we do things here in Kansas out on the Great Plains because God might be using them in the most countercultural ways. Or even more scary, God might ask you to go somewhere where you don't fit in at all. And people look at you and go, what in the world are you doing here? And why are you dressed that way? And what are you eating? And how do you talk? We can't even understand you. And in that moment, just be aware because God might be ready to do something great and countercultural with you. Here's the beautiful thing. When it comes to our availability and our ability, we get equipped by God. You know, God's the one that puts it together for years ago. I was a young pastor, and I was appointed to church in western Kansas, West Bethany, a wonderful church. Loved those people. They, our, our tenure there was great, and we saw God do some great things. And it was a, a wonderful experience for a guy in his 20s to be able to pastor and shepherd there. I showed up right out of seminary, and um, believe it or not, in those days I was in pretty good shape. <clears throat> a few years ago. Um, but I was in my 20s, and there was a group of guys, uh, young guys in the church. We would play pickup basketball on Thursday nights. And one Thursday night, I went to play basketball with them, and we were taking a break and hitting the drinking fountain for some water. And one of the guys came up to me and said, hey, you're in pretty good shape. Would you be interested in going on the volunteer fire department? I was like, really? And, you know, there was a part of me in the back of my head, I was like, man, the, 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 the childhood, the, the little boy in me, the kid that always wanted to be a firefighter was like, yes! And so I go, well, I would think about that, you know. <laughs> I was like, when, where, how do I sign up? And so I went, you know, and I signed up to become a volunteer firefighter, and, and then they said, okay, there's some training coming, you've got to go and do this training, you've got to know what you're doing so you don't get killed, which is always a good thing. And, and so then when I showed up, before I could even do the training, they said, we've got to get you outfitted. And so they, the night I showed up, they got this gear out. We call it bunker gear. And they, I had the pants and the suspenders and the jacket and the hood and the helmet and the boots and the gloves and the, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, man, it was just like, it was like Christmas. It was great. And I was sitting there, and they were opening this stuff up. Okay, you're going to need this. And then you're going to need, the, you're going to need a helmet. You're going to need boots. You're going to need gloves. You're going to need an Omex hood. And then, and then they got to what we call the SCBA, the, the self-contained breathing apparatus. It's the tanks we wear. And they go, you need to know how to put this on. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, this is cool. I get to play with all this stuff. And never once did I stop to think, what is this going to cost me? I mean, I'm wearing thousands of dollars of gear here. And I don't know the first thing about, I don't know how to turn this stuff on. I don't know, you know, and they're t teaching me how to do this. About eight years later, I was teaching other guys how to do it. It was kind of funny. We went the whole gamut and we brought a couple of younger guys in and I got to train them. But in that moment, when I was getting fully geared up and being trained, I never once sat there and thought, am I going to have to write a check for this stuff? You know, I just... Thought, believed that I, somebody's paying for this. You know, I guess the, the county 
put the money together to give me a couple thousand dollar cool firefighter suit I could wear on Halloween. No. The people of that community invested so that our fire department had those things. And here's the thing. You know, when God is starting to equip us and we start to learn stuff in, in, in elements and we start to strengthen ourselves in life groups and we start to understand the complexities of God in worship and we go, man, this is cool, this is cool. We, we seldom stop to think, you know, how, how have I done this? The awareness is that God is the one that is equipped. He has just given it. He has provided. And so God provides in our equipping. And one of the things that he does is he helps us in dealing with our doubts. So when we go, Lord, there's no way I can do it. When we stand with Moses and go, you got the wrong guy. Some mistake has been made. He says, no, let me deal with your doubts. Let me remind you that you are mine And I will use you. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. You see, if God is asking us to do something, God is fully prepared to equip equip and provide and put us in motion. I have yet to see the Lord move his people to do something and then leave the resources out. I've never seen it. The psalmist says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. I've never seen those who run after God lack for what God wants to do. Now, we might lack for other stuff, but we won't lack for the kingdom stuff. The next piece of being equipped by God is that Being equipped by God helps us to keep our self-image in perspective. This is one of the things as I talk to people and even deal with myself on this, that sometimes our self-image gets skewed. How we view ourselves gets twisted. And sometimes it's because the world has twisted it and they've told us we're not worth anything. Or sometimes it gets twisted because people who want to manipulate us tell us we're great and even more wonderful than we actually are. And so our self-image gets turned around and we, we err on one side or the other. We either go to the one side and we go, God must have made some mistake because I'm a loser. And there's no way God can use a loser because the whole world has told me over and over and over again. My parents told me, my siblings told me, my spouse has told me, my boss has told me that I'm worth nothing. And we've just heaped up other people's lives with our lives. Or we go to the other extreme and we go, you know what? My parents told me I was great. They told me I could do anything in the world. And nobody has ever told me, you know, you're not very good at that. And so I just believe I can do anything. And we have this self-deception where we think that I, you know, I don't need God. I can do it all on my own because I am awesome. Well, one of the things God does to equip us is he calibrates our self-perspective. He calibrates our self-image. And it happens in our heads. It happens in our minds. In Romans chapter 12, another familiar passage to us, Paul says to the Romans this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It happens in your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And here we get to it. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So here's Paul going, you know, when you, when you 
commit yourself to the Lord and he starts to change things and he transforms our minds, we then have a great concept or at least the opportunity of a great concept of who we really are. And then we don't think of ourselves more highly and blunder into stuff and the people go, well, we saw that coming because he thought he wouldn't fail. Or we don't cower in the corner and have this self-perception that there's no way we're worth anything and people have told us that our whole life. I just want to tell you, if you're in that place where people have heaped those lies that you're worthless, that is not of God. And it needs to be broken. In the same way, if you think, I don't need God, I've got it all together, I'm going to do this on my own, you're in for some hard times. The final thing that I want to point out in being equipped by God is that when God equips us, there's giftedness in his spirit. This is an entire series on its own. But there's something amazing that happens when God wants to do something and he finds people who are available. He gives them ability that is supernatural. And you might be going, okay, Pastor, you're getting into the weird stuff. I can hear the eerie music going and this is strange. That God's going to, like, I don't have any power over this. I, and I just want to tell you, we'll, we'll do some teaching later on the gifts in, in probably next year. But I, I just got to tell you that in the moment when God is asking you to do something and you think it's beyond his ability, it is not beyond his ability to gift you. James chapter 1 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from God coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And so when God is saying, are you available? He's also saying, I'm available. I can equip you. I can prepare you. And that brings me to this next point. When God asks for us availability, then, and we respond and we assent to that, and we say, yes, I would do that, then the next thing is preparation and inspiration, I think. And so when I, we think about preparation, I, and then we go, okay, well then what do I need to do? Because, yes, God is going to do things, and some of them will be supernatural and will be in the moment, but there are also things we can do if God is saying, I want you to do this, or things we can do to be better and better and better at it. So let's not discount our own abilities in training, developing skills. In those. That's, that's why Julie and I are teaching the class, because we want you to be prepared. That's why we bring our kids to 252 Kids, because we want our kids to be prepared for life. We don't want to wait until they're 21 and go, hey, now let me tell you about Jesus. That's ridiculous. We want them to be prepared. And so the question is, then what do you need to do in preparation for what God wants you to do? You might be one of those people who is resistant and maybe a little bit arrogant who goes, you know, if I've got to do anything, it's not going to be of God, so he's got to do it all on his own. And let me tell you, that is just hoarding yourself and your time and your abilities from God. If God calls you to do something, he's calling you to work at it. He's calling you to take some kind of a step that is going to use and require your own initiative. And so preparation is part of that. And what are you going to do? What do you need to do? 
And so I just want to uh, give you a quick glimpse of how this works in Scripture, just going through several people who went through what they needed to do. That, you know, in order to be great people in the kingdom of God that we remember in history, they had to actually do some things on their own. So that's just a a glimpse of people down through scripture that God said, are you available? And they said, yeah. And then they had to take a step based on that response. So preparation is what do you need to do? But inspiration is what does God need to do? Because there's, if God is calling us to do this, there's a component where only he can do that. That's up to him. What can only God do in this situation? And that's where we come together and say, okay, Lord, if if you're asking me for, for me to be available with this, then there's big gaps that you've got to fill that are not going to be filled by any human, but only the Lord Almighty will do that. And that's where we go to our knees and we say, okay, Lord, come. We're available. Come and make our efforts complete. Come and bring blessing to our endeavors. And so that's what we're going to do today. So for some of us, maybe for some of you, it's like, you know, I've been, I've been pushing this back, saying, no, Lord, find somebody else. It's the wrong time. I'm not feeling well. Whatever the, whatever the expression of resistance might be, and you're just at a point where you're going, okay, I'm, I'm done saying no. I'm going to say yes. Or maybe it's you've said yes, but you realize that what you've said yes to goes way beyond what you can do, and it's going to require a supernatural intervention of God to complete the task. And we've got to go, Lord, please supply what is needed. And as you respond to that, maybe for you it needs to be more than just a nod of the head or an assent of the heart, and you need to take a public step. If you want to come forward, we'll pray with you. You're always welcome to do that. You know... Uh, Northwest folks, you know they're always welcome here at the front. So I want to invite the band to come up and we're going to sing. We're going to, we're going to receive an offering and our ushers will come and pass your offering plate. Once the plate's passed by and to the rows behind you, stand with us. And if you wish to, to make that kind of commitment, say, I've, I've got to say yes now, Lord. Um, you're welcome to come up here and we will celebrate that with you. Whatever that endeavor may be, we'll go, yes, Lord, together. All right? God bless you as you give, and particularly God bless you as you respond.